the, North Carolina's got a crop that uh, one person would say it's about as good as it can be. One person would say it's a very good average crop. Uh, North Carolina's pleased with their crop. Uh, certainly there are spots here, there, and yonder that got a little wet. But they're looking for an average crop plus uh, the yields that they anticipate. So as a consequence, I would have to say that we're looking something in the neighborhood of about 900 pounds per acre for about a yield in, in, in North Carolina right now. We'll see if that we can get better. Looking at belt-wide or, or region-wide, uh, we're looking at something in the neighborhood of uh, about 2.8, maybe 2.9 million planted acres, and we're hoping to pull off about uh, uh, 5.3, 5.4 million bales off of that. So, again, it's a, a good average-plus crop that, that, that we see in, in, in that region. Particular spots in the region that we would want to look at, the big state, of course, is Georgia, the big area, the southwest area around Albany. Uh, that's your big area, as uh, uh, John mentioned uh, last night as we were talking. There's some spots there. But by and large, the crop is off to a good start. Uh, most people in Georgia are pleased with what they see. Uh, nevertheless, again, with some early weather problems that were hit and missed, slowed the crop development down, but it's coming on strong, and we just need the heat units is, is basically not seeing much insect pressure at all. Move over to Alabama, much the same story. We are beginning to see some stink bug issues in, in Alabama, but North Alabama crop, the Tennessee Valley crop, as well as the Alabama River crop there in the Montgomery area, most folks are pretty pleased with those crops. And dropping down to the Gulf Coast, to Scambia, Baldwin, County and uh, Monroe County, those crops look very, very good. So, in this, again, the southeast, uh, a, a good crop, a crop that we could anticipate to be in the total of about 5.4 million bales, uh, and that's uh, that's off of an acreage of about 2.8 million, which coincidentally the year before the acreage was about, rough terms, about the same, about 2.8 million. Now, dropping down into the, into the uh, Mid-South, uh, looking first uh, at Mississippi, it's a crop that, uh, the, from the Delta standpoint, again, too much rain, too little rain, too wet in the north, too dry in the south, but a crop that's been able to, as cotton does, being the desert plant it, it is, has muddied, muddled through all of these weather conditions and is now on track. I would say, as we know in cotton, July is when the crop is made, so to speak, when all the fruit comes on. So we need a lot of heat in July, and we'll get the crop that we're looking for. The Mid-South, we're hoping to pull in the neighborhood of about 5.1 million bales out of that. Uh, that would That's coming off of about 2.8 million uh, acres. And that kind of production would be just a, a little bit short, probably, of what we had last year or about what we had last year. An average minus crop uh, that uh, still has a great deal of potential if we can get the heat units we need in July and August. Uh, looking at Tennessee, uh, looking at the Boot Hill in Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, West Tennessee crop a little bit too wet. Some of North Carolina, some of uh, northern northern Arkansas, and the Boot Hill got a little bit wet. But now they're getting the hot weather they need, and they're alle alleviating the uh, wet problems. 
plus they're counting now on having some great subsoil moisture. So in total, a plus crop there, uh, and that gives us basically the entire Mid-South. Louisiana's had some real problems with floods and flooding, uh, but it's a crop that we still have a lot of time to make in the Mid-South, and Louisiana should be able to pull itself up on the bootstrap with its bootstraps and get the crop that's going to be possibly marginally below what what what's its past what its past five year average is. So very little insect pressure about the, throughout the entire southeast and mid south. We're starting to see some. Uh, would make the comment there that corn's not coming off yet, so the insects are still in the corn patches, but. Uh, I, I think we continue to look at a crop that's uh, in the neighborhood of 10 million bales in the Mid-South and Southeast. Thank let's, you. let's go to Texas next with Dr. John Robinson. Thank you, Pat. Well, looking back for the Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas region, it's in many ways been a year of extremes. Um, to begin with, as everybody's aware, we've had above-average moisture that, from September to June that interfered with the 2019 planting season. It resulted in a lot of uh, replanting and prevented planting and basically gave us a pretty fuzzy baseline of planted acres. And along with all that wetness came cooler than normal temperatures that contribute to problems with getting the crop established. Now, that's since switched into a period, you know, normal beneficial heat unit accumulation. Um, the formal uh, condition, the El Nino forecasts and condition that gave us all that uh, weather has switched uh, now to a forecast of neutral ENSO conditions, neutral to sub-La Nina, so there's a change there. Um, we had relative prices originally that favored cotton over grains, but then we saw a reversal of that relationship before the end of the planting season, which is kind of unusual, and it incentivized a last-minute switch to corn in some areas. Then looking back also, we've had normal hazards like uh, wind and hail damage in the plains. Uh, we had a rather severe flood in the Rio Grande Valley, which is uh, not fully accounted for, but it could be tens of thousands of acres have been, have been damaged by standing water in that event. We've got heat and dryness stress on late-planted dryland crops uh, down in the coastal bend, and it's probably an emerging issue in, in central Texas and further, further north and further west for dryland acreage, particularly if it has an underdeveloped root system, which probably a lot of it does. Um, and lastly, it, it leaves us with a crop that's reportedly two to four weeks late, which raises probably the biggest variable in the whole, in the whole equation, and that is what the harvest maturity period will be like. That's, that's going to be a huge influence on the potential uh, productivity. So currently, if you look at the informal and formal assessments and field condition ratings and such, we're basically looking at a at a crop that that looks good to people. It's progressing well with bountiful heat units. We've got a lot of dry land acreage that could use a drink, as it as it always uh, needs at this time of the year. Uh, the reported insect pressures are they sound normal to me, pretty much in a post boweevil world. So yeah, a few stink bugs and spider mites and some reports of Bt resistant bowworms, but nothing nothing really terrible there. And so, like I say, it leaves us with a well-progressing crop of somewhat unknown size whose uh, ultimate maturity and productivity, at least north of I-10, really remains to be seen. So the implications for forecasting, you know, until we get, until we get proven yields and FSA-certified acres, um, I think we're, we have to make some major caveats to, to USDA's assumptions, at least as of July. 
the first big caveat is, is going to be to yield. Um, you know, ordinarily in the Southwest, when we, when we uh, have uh, things that uh, impact yield and, and impact abandonment, we, we lose dryland acres, which tends to actually raise the average yield for what's left. This year is different because a lot of what was abandoned was irrigated acreage. So my, my first guess would, would be that we could expect lower than average yields. But on the other side of that equation is this is the kind of year where a lot of dryland acreage that might normally yield 300 pounds or something uh, might yield a bale and a half if it if it's had the moisture it's had up till now and then uh, and then get a few timely rains going forward. So there's a whole lot riding on the maturity of the dryland crop that'll that may counteract the loss of a lot of irrigated acres, and we'll just have to see what that ultimate effect is on yield. The other huge caveat is abandonment. Um, if you go with USDA's uh, assumption of 10-year average abandonment adjusted for moisture, which in my case I just threw out three of the driest years and came up with something like 20% abandonment, I think that's probably way too low this year. Um, there was a reduction if you compare March 28 to June 28 planted acreage numbers of 147,000 acres. That might that might in Texas, and that might account for some of the switching out of cotton into corn in the in the panhandle. But even for um, well, for a lot of a lot of ground that has a June 5th final planting date or later, and that would include the South Plains, all the Rolling Plains, uh, most of Oklahoma, uh, there's a real question how much was in how much was reported intended to be planted as of early June that may or may not have gotten planted ultimately because of the problems with getting stands established and flooded fields and such. And, and that could be a very large number. So if you just take USDA's assumptions, you know, you can come up with something like 8.5 million bales uh, for Texas and 1.3 million for the Kansas-Oklahoma region. But just playing around with the abandonment number and raising that up to a realistically higher level can, can take off a million bales really quickly and, and then on top of that you've got the issue of what happens if uh, if we have a you know worst case scenario a frost in September or something that cuts into the yield potential that could lower it even further that's it Pat all right let's go to Gerald and give uh, get his comments on crop conditions out west well the, the far west is uh, a little bit behind like everyone else Oh, excuse me. The far west is a little bit behind like everywhere else, but it's catching up pretty nicely. California had a lot of rain this spring. Uh, I don't know if it was record snows, but a lot of snow in the mountains, uh, plenty of water, but uh, uh, things are, are getting off to a pretty decent start. Uh, unusually, we had some hail this year that uh, it, we normally don't get hail, but uh, they took out uh, quite a few acres of, of Pima specifically. I say quite a few, probably maybe 10,000 acres don't have an exact count just yet, but uh, uh, the, the the hail did impact uh, the acreage quite a bit. USDA is carrying 200 and uh, I think 60,000 or 240,000 acres of Pima in California. Um, our numbers would be a little bit lower, probably somewhere around 220,000 acres of, of Pima. The uh, uh, and, and that's the majority of the, the cotton in California. There's about 40,000 acres of, of upland. Um, cotton along the river on the California side of the uh, Arizona-California border, that's in very, very good shape. In fact, those guys are expecting maybe close to record yields this year. Um, in the uh, Sacramento Valley, 
Um, that crop is progressing quite well. There's uh, maybe 4,000 acres up there. It's mostly seed production acres up in, in the Sacramento Valley. And uh, in fact, really most of the acres in California, in the Central Valley of California and in Sacramento Valley is, is on Upland anyway, is, is their seed production uh, acres. Uh, the Pima crop, though, is, uh, is progressing well. USDA has been very consistent in terms of rating the California crop as 100% fair for the last four, five, six weeks, and I would have to concur with that. There's some very, very good cotton out there, but uh, particularly uh, around Bakersfield, the crop is not doing so well. Uh, we've had some, uh, some insect issues. Typically when we have a wet year, once it warms up, and the the, uh, the foothills dry out, we get a lot, lot of bugs into the valley, and that certainly is what's <laughs> happened this year. Uh, they've had to spray quite a, quite often for, for ligus uh, infestation. So it's a very mixed crop. Arizona in general, the central uh, part of Arizona, is doing pretty well. West of Phoenix uh, in that Buckeye area, the crop is progressing quite nicely. Uh, south of Phoenix, it's a little it's a little more questionable. They've had a little, uh, 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 little more uh, variable weather, if you will. And right now we're getting into the monsoon season, so we're going to get some, some rain showers, some hot weather, you know, some possibly some, some hail could, could come out of it, although it's not likely. Um, southeastern Arizona, the crop is doing fantastic. Um, I understand that uh, people are very, very pleased with it. And Overall, the, the New Mexico crop is doing okay as well. So when you're looking at the far west, uh, total production in the far west is probably around 1.5 million acres or 1.5 million bales. Uh, let's just call it 1.475 to 1.525 million bales over there, about half of which is going to be Pima. I'm carrying Pima production right now, uh, U.S. Pima production at 775,000 bales. And upland production in uh, in the far west of uh, around 750,000 bales between Arizona, California, and uh, and New Mexico. Pat, that would uh, conclude my remarks on the crop in, in the far west. Okay, uh, Kip, we want to go to you next and get uh, an international view of crop conditions. Well, it's uh, I'm going to concentrate on just a few. Uh, thank you, Pat. By the way, um, I'm going to concentrate just on a few countries because. Uh, there's a whole lot to deal with outside the U.S. Uh, the most important is India right now. I think about a third of the world's production, uh, not a production, of area is in India. And this year uh, the monsoon had about a two-week late beginning, which was very disconcerting. Uh, not unusual, but still disconcerting. Um, the planting uh, started off slowly because of the monsoon. However, we've caught up and the unusual sort of behavior where the monsoon was in the north and the eastern part of the country and the coastal south, the central part of the country, Maharashtra and Telangana, both wound up uh, really late in getting the monsoon. Planting was slow. Gujarat, on the other hand, had an earlier cyclone that started the planting earlier than normal. Now, planting has progressed very nicely with the recent, about last 10 days or so, uh, the monsoon moving. It looks like we might actually get a little bit more area than originally thought, simply because of the monsoon movement. It's not over yet. The forecast for the monsoon is we may get a withdrawal in the next six to eight days. Depending on how long that uh, stays out, we might have uh, 
some additional sort of concerns about that crop because of moisture. A bigger situation is the, uh, the seed situation in India. But last year before last, there was a little dust up with the government and some of the uh, international seed companies, which has left some uncertainty on uh, the quality of the seeds in the country. Uh, several part, right now, the double stack genes are illegal by law. However, the, some farmers are planting widespread in Maharashtra and in Gujarat. However, um, the source of those seeds is, is a bit questionable, so we're a big concern over the last two years, we've seen some, uh, some bollworm problems, the infestation. The farmers are not using the, uh, the recommended technique of having a bit of a refuge area. So the, uh, the bollworm has gained resistance a lot quicker than it would have otherwise. Um, so that's a real concern there. We note that in India, prices are pretty high uh, domestic and that may be an indication that last year's production was slightly overstated, <coughs> excuse me, overstated or that meal use is a bit letter, uh, better than most are thinking right now. The next country that's of, uh, of very big concern is Pakistan. We had an early locust infestation that came in, uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of concern. We hadn't seen that in years where it was a problem. However, the SIND uh, suffered just a little bit of damage. The government, in fact, did a very good job of uh, applying, uh, applying insecticides and taking care of that problem to the extent probably you can. However, there's a second breeding that's expected, and if they get enough rains in the Punjab, we might in fact wind up, that's a bigger concern, is the potential for the second breeding season of the locusts. However, saying all that, comments we got out of Pakistan now is if it were a beauty contest, that cotton crop wins. It really does look good. The sin movement uh, of that crop is, uh, has started, and there's big demand for that cotton. The prices are up in Pakistan right now because of that movement of crop. There's uh, consideration that demand, again, consumption might be a bit better in Pakistan than many are talking about. Uh, China, of course, uh, mill use is down. As we all know, the, uh, the trade war is going on. Uh, mill use is significantly lower than what we had talked about or thought about a couple of years ago. The production right now looks very favorable, particularly in Xinjiang. Conditions have been good there. Uh, we've had our normal sort of early season sandstorms, all the particulars that we typically have there. Uh, the auction, uh, state auction, has started in March. It is now, in fact, uh, very strong. Uh, they, I think it was 87, 88% actually, has been sold of what's offered. So the demand is strong there uh, for cotton. Australia is another very um, important, uh, although not a huge producer, the quality of that cotton and the proximity to the major spinning markets make it terribly important. They're in a multi-year drought. Uh, there's, we're getting rains there now. However, there's not nearly enough rains to take care of the drought problem. Expectations are that crop will be from about 1.8 to 2 million, uh, where typically we'd be looking at 3.5 plus for that crop. I didn't mention, and I should have, I apologize, the Indian production is, is now being looked at in the range from 27 to 29 million bales, China from 27 and a half to about 26, and, uh, or, excuse me, uh, 27 and a half to 28, and um, Pakistan, most people are looking at, at, at about 8 million bales. So uh, given that the world is now looking at about a uh, 125 million, 126 million bale production, 
mill use is just about the same level. So we're expecting to see actually mill use probably, depending on if you have the high end of mill use, low end of production, we're probably going to see consumption a little bit better than the uh, consumption better than mill use. Uh, Millage is bigger than production, excuse me. So that's the expectation right now. Pat, I think that's all I really wanted to talk about now. I think we've got some things we can do in the general discussion. Okay. Well, uh, that concludes uh, the evaluation of uh, crop outlook. We will now want to go to uh, OA and get his outlook for the cotton market. OA? Well, uh, of course, I'm from Mississippi, and uh, I think B.B. King told me to remember that the thrill is gone. Uh, so I have to start out with that and trying to remember how we can generate some excitement in cotton with the the situation we're seeing and, and trying to find some thrills. Uh, they're hard, few and hard to come by as we see it. We're back to a what I would call a strictly a weather market. Uh, we can have yet a near-record world crop. We yet have a record world crop. That's a bit of a stretch, but it's, it's, uh, we can make the case. Uh, but Mother Nature would have to be awfully cooperative, and that's not something that I think we could put on paper and say that's expected. More than likely, we would see average cotton weather, and I'd love to find out what the definition of average cotton weather is, but I'll forecast it and say that's what we'll see. And as a consequence, our crop will come down a little bit. I think, Gerald and Kip and John, what we've said, we can easily come up with a U.S. crop of 22 million bales. I think uh, without stretching it, we could make a decent argument actually for 23, 23 and a half million bales, though that's a little heavy. Uh, but I think we could make that, 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 that argument somewhat. Uh, we get uh, crops uh, that size, we get demand that size, and we're looking at a downturn in consumption. Even though USDA's number today is higher consumption, I think the, in reality, as we look down the road, consumption moves lower. We're having major problems in China. We'll have some problems in the U.S. with lower consumption, but major problems in China. So I think consumption comes down. I think that tells us that world carryover increases. The inverse relationship between world carryover and price then would tell us that prices are going to go lower. I can sympathize with my friends uh, at this table that uh, are starting to get a little worn out with bearish notes and bearish tendencies and think the market may not have much more downside. Uh, that the risk to the downside is about to shot its wad. It's time to move to the upside. But I'm still hanging my hat on more bearish activity, unfortunately. I just don't see the uh, consumption problems. As we look across the sea, things that we don't talk about, things that we never talk about, because in our minds they never affect cotton. They affect something else. But we do see now, and the U.S. is tending to ignore it, we're seeing some major upheaval, social upheaval in Hong Kong with the government hiring troops, bringing in troops, hiring thugs to uh, resist the protesters. We're seeing major upheavals uh, in, cotton's, in, in China's cotton <clears throat> 
primary cotton producing area, which is becoming its primary cotton cons- uh, consuming area with respect to textile activities, uh, and that's the the upper northwest of the, the province of Xinjiang, where they've moved their agricultural production to at great cost, but uh, very logical in a controlled economy. They would move it up there. So they've got the good weather. They've got the good water. But, uh, again, something that's not drawing any attention, any attention in the free world, would be basically, you can call it what you like, it's little more than forced labor camps uh, in Urgench, and Chinese citizens are being required to work in these forced labor camps that are involved in the textile industry. Now, we don't score many points with that because it, it, it's, it doesn't sound like supply. It doesn't sound like a rainstorm. It doesn't sound like a flood. It's a social issue. We don't, we don't want to talk about those, but they're real, they're significant, and they are impacting the cotton community in China and around the world. And the market is going to face that and is beginning to face that, and we will have some price problems as a result of that. So where do I see prices going? Where are we now? 63, 64 cents in deck. Uh, I think this market does move lower. I think the consumption situation is so significant that we take the market into the 50s. Uh, how much lower, how far deep into the 50s, I don't know at this stage. I'm not prepared to say. Uh, I think we do go into the 58-cent area and just see what goes on. I am very cognizant that Kip talked about the Indian monsoon. It's been late. It was never predicted to be more than 95, 94% of normal. Uh, while it's been a month late now, it's kicking in, and it's kicking in to be that 94, 95% normal. Uh, and it's not unusual for the uh, Indian monsoon to be late. They're used to that. They can handle it, no problem. But we have to watch the crop size in India, the crop size in the United States. Mother Nature still controls those, so we we have to see what those crops are. If we get a bust in India or the U.S., then we get some price increase. But I don't think we can go out and, and wishing and hoping that we get a price increase, uh, hoping for weather problems somewhere else. So I'm bearish. I remain bearish down to 68, to 58, 57, 56 cents wouldn't surprise me. Uh, bullish to the top side. Uh, man, there's just nobody long this market. Everybody's bullish. More so, I'm possibly, let's say, a record bearish. Uh, so you, you tiptoe around things like that. The market could turn. You get some short covering. You can get this market back up into the other 60s, upper 60s. Some people will say in the 70s. I, I just don't can't quite see it because I don't think the fundamentals will, will support that. But on a day-to-day basis, you can find that the technicals would support that because of uh, how, how, how bearish this market is. Uh, I, if I allow to, Pat, I'll fill in some more about when when the other guys speak and. Correct, <clears throat> correct all my misstatements. Okay, well, let's open it up for the rest of our panel. Gerald, what are your thoughts on the market? <clears throat> um, I, I guess I'm not as negative as, as OA. Uh, you know, the consumption, I think, is uh, it, it's going to be a little bit better than, than, than we think. But, uh, yeah, there's definitely no doubt problems in China. 
I was very encouraged yesterday's export report, you know, sell 163,000 bales for current crop delivery. I'm thinking, really, you're going to deliver that much cotton in the next two weeks? But, uh, hey, who knows, another 200,000 bales for new crop. You know, we've got commitments of new crop already of almost 4.6 million bales. That's the fourth best. I mean, if we were to stop today, that would be the fourth the fourth best uh, uh, new crop sales going into a, a new crop here that, that we've seen in, in history. Um, so very good demand out there, at least so far. Um, and we're going to need it. I mean, with a 22 to 23 million bale crop, 5 to 5.5 million bale carryover, um, we're going to need good demand. So, uh, yes, while uh, um, things don't look uh, spiffy at the moment, uh, I could see uh, I could see us getting a little bit of a rally. Um, I always said everybody's bearish. Well, everybody outside of the commercials, uh, you look at the commitment of, of traders' report, and, uh, um, you know, the, the trade is, is virtually flat this market. Um, that, you know, they're not overly negative. They're not overly bullish. They're virtually flat this market. The speculators, the managed money fund, they're definitely short this market. And I think, uh, to always point, if something were to happen to get these speculators nervous about being short, you could see a pretty good rally. Um, I don't know how far up we could go. I'm thinking 68, possibly you could touch upon 70 cents, but probably 68 uh, cents would be be the upside. As far as the downside, I do agree with OA that we probably could go into the into the uh, into the 50s. You know, 60 cents right now is uh, pretty darn good support. If you break that, then uh, you know probably your next major support area would be 57 to, to that 58 cent area. Um, the um, I, it, you know, it's 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 interesting as, as negative as you could be out here with a much bigger crop. This market has been somewhat stubborn, and it's staying here in these low 60s. Not sure what that's all about, you know. Um, but uh, so that gives me some, some, uh, some feeling that this, this market may not be as, as negative as we think. But uh, uh, maybe, maybe once we get into the harvest and the crop starts moving, and the, the weight of a 22 to 23 million bale crop hits us. Maybe that's that's what will eventually put the pressure on prices to, to move into the into the 50s. Pat, other thoughts? I'd like to. <clears throat> Joe made a very good comment. I think about the the market just is is holding in here well under some really what appear to be. Uh, negative fundamentals. Uh, there's a pall on the market. Something we haven't talked about is this trade war, which has had an enormous impact. Um, we're seeing a lot of source changes. A lot of uh, textile firms are moving their area of source from China to other places. It's going to Vietnam, which is sort of an extension now of the Chinese market. Uh, we're seeing it in Indonesia. We're seeing uh, South Korea come back a bit more uh, spinning. We're going to see more and more of that. We're also seeing uh, a switch into a few African countries for spinning and moving in a little bit higher on the textile end. We're also seeing it occur in South and Central America. This is part of which is it's not really a negative thing. It's just a pall of what happens next. Um, if, in fact, we do uh, get in a situation where uh, the President Xi and President Trump come to some sort of agreement where we can get cotton sold into China without a tariff. 
I think uh, the sources I talked to say that there would immediately be anywhere from a million to a million and a half bales uh, bought of U.S. cotton. That would, to Gerald's point earlier, give us a bit of a boost. Don't know how far that could take us because we have a 22 to 23 million bale crop that has not been hedged. These farmers have been waiting on it. So uh, if this market goes up, we'd see quite a lot of selling from the uh, from the uh, farmers. So I am a little bit more optimistic, I think, than uh, what uh, OA gave us. I, I'm not bullish by any stretch of the imagination at this point, but I'm not sure uh, consumption is nearly as bad as what, uh, what we the yarn prices have slipped a bit in Asia, but they're not in what you would consider a free fall. They're not in, oh, my gosh, uh, we're not able to spin or, or sell yarn. That Part of that is the sourcing problem. As you're moving things, prices go up and down, and I think we've got some dislocations on that, which has created part of that. So um, I hope that makes sense to you. I know what I was trying to say. I hope I made my point well. But uh, I'm just not quite as bearish as uh, OA is in the near term, or rather in the long but term. But I don't, I don't think you have to be that bearish on consumption to just say if you make a 22 million bale crop and have 5.5 million bales of ending stocks, then fundamentally there's, you know, we should slip to the to 60 cents, or, you know, at least we should slip to the point that the FSA loan thing becomes operational, which we're a few cents away from that. I otherwise do agree with a price forecast, you know, 12 cent range from the upper 50s to 70. And I would just kind of steer people to think about the likely, um, the likely unfolding of news that might, just what we've been talking about, you know, we don't know when there's going to be a tweet about, hey, there's a resolution to the trade thing. That'll come, if it comes, it'll come as a surprise and we get a get an upward spike on short covering. But the rest of it, you know, the unfolding of the crop and the confirmation of the crop size, you can think it's going to be a slow plodding thing that's going to start with the August supply and demand report, but it's not going to be finished there. will probably be the October report before we have a really good handle on the size of the crop and on the abandonment question. And, you know, until we get Jennings data and all that kind of stuff, that's going to take a while to unfold. So I think we're going to continue to be range bound. And as the crop size takes shape, then you might have this this kind of slow erosion of prices downward. Um, but on the other hand, you get surprise policy things can cause an upward spike, uh, a, a frost or some sudden or a tropical, you know, landfall, something could uh, cause an upward spike too. Pat, I, I just, uh, I either, with an attempt to step on toes or an attempt not to step on toes, I'm not sure which it is. Uh, uh, tweets are for social media, they're not for the market. And those that find the market in tweeting, I think, miss the market entirely. Now, there's some decent information that pops up out there, but it has to be clicked and checked and double checked. Uh, I think there are continued to be a number of things. We, we spoke about yarn prices. Yarn prices are falling everywhere in Asia. So, you know, if they replace that cotton to make new yarn, they are anticipate buying cotton at a cheaper price. So they are anticipating cheaper cotton. That does not say textile mills will be right. That does not mean say that the price will come down to the textile mills. But the textile mills are betting that it will. And looking at the fundamentals, it's difficult not to agree with them. 
They have stepped aside. They are not buying. They are not chasing the market. They are not creating demand. Bull markets are made when demand increases. Bear markets are made when demand decreases. Demand is decreasing. And to say that while USDA today has demand strong or will be stronger, it says nothing about, and we talked about the change in sourcing, and uh, you, you, you're moving some sourcing some cotton out of China. It's going to be spun in Vietnam. Or it's going to be spun in Bangladesh. Yes, yes, yes. I actually, my, where I missed the goal last year was it's taking longer than I thought it would. And it finally took me a while to understand as these sourcing patterns change, it takes time, and I think Kip did allude to this, it takes time for these sources, this sourcing activity to, to to adjust, and instead of going to China, it's got to go to Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and uh, 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 Malaysia, Cambodia. So what it says there is it takes time. It says demand is falling. Demand is, in fact, falling because it takes it time to move from one country to the next. You don't snap your finger and demand, stay, and demand comes right back. So that's another issue that I have as to why I continue to remain bearish and to say that just because sourcing is changing, it's not going to affect the price. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I am dead wrong. I'd like to see prices higher. But when we look at the things that are going on in China, and I don't see how they can be uh, uh, sugar-coated over anymore, we look at the human rights abuses, uh, not to get pro-President Trump and negative President Trump. That serves no purpose here. Uh, but just look at the, the policies that we're following through. We've not yelped and yelped and fussed about China and its human rights issues. Probably we should, more so than the tariff. That's going to come on. You've got Nike, you've got Adidas using all these uh, this forced labor, and people in China call it concentration labor. Uh, you don't see Nike and Adidas, Adidas fussing. They use this concentration labor and send pro crops up product to the United States. Uh, they use this polyester that's so much in excess it's being produced, and they talk about the green environment, yet this polyester is being dumped. H&M, the big place, attended the Textile World Seminar the other day and spoke here in New York. H&M was said to have one billion, that's B isn't bad, one billion individual garments that had to be destroyed. Well, that's another polyester dump pit for plastic. It's another big plastic hole in the ground. Uh, yes, we have this huge, oh, huge overcapacity of polyester production in the world. It's coming off at 50 cents a pound or whatever. China is having to pay $1.34 for cotton, $1.40 for cotton. So, boy, well, uh, 50 cents for polyester, that's used polyester. But nobody's buying it in that, in that quantity, so that's why an H&M has to dump. Can't give away, can't do anything with uh, a billion. Again, the word B is in boy or bad. That many garments go into a plastic heat pit. Uh, so that, that, that's, that, that's why I come back and say the U.S. has to work on cotton consumption. 
the U.S. has to find a way to capture some of the cotton market share. I'll shut up before these guys shut me up. <laughs> Any other comments? Any challenges to OA? Well, I'll, I'll make one. Uh, the uh, Back in May, there was a, a particular tweet can be influential, not on fundamentals, but just on market sentiment. There was a tweet on a Sunday afternoon about what was going to happen the following Friday, and the stock market and the cotton market were down every day that week, and that, that's when the funds stepped it up on their short positioning. So I'm just saying things can happen of a rather unexpected nature don't really have anything to do with agriculture, but they can influence the futures market, at least in the short run. I don't know that that's so much a, a people thing as an algorithmic trading program that, that they pick up a word, a headline, whatever, wherever they get it. It could be a tweet. It could be a headline in, in, uh, in, in a Reuters article or something. But, uh, and then they start, they start trading uh, willy-nilly uh, based upon their, their algorithms. So um, I don't... I think it affects those people more than it does, you know, just a typical person, you know, reading something. Well, I can take that tweet to say, well, gosh, we got that tweet. Man, the stock market's up now to record level, 27,000, 27,300. My God, please send some more tweets. I like those. In the case of agriculture, though, and, and the commodities, I think those are typically turn out to be short-term. You do get the algorithmic moves, but at the end of the day, uh, the fundamentals do sort of step up, and uh, maybe not to the total degree, but that's usually a short-term phenomenon. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. Fundamentals de 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 determine price, direct price. It may take a week. It take, may take a month. It may take three months. Fundamentals determine the price. They always went out. You get a lot of noise in the short term, but always right. The fundamentals in the longer term, you know, they they determine what's uh, what's going to happen. Gerald, you uh, you handle more cotton than anybody I know now. Grow a cotton, <laughs> uh, and, and through two true commodities. Uh, tell me again how you see it, if you will. Well, I think the. Uh, I'm very impressed with this market here, short term. I mean, it's, uh, we've got a lot of bad news in front of us. The, probably the bad news that we're not seeing in front of us is, uh, you know, your, uh, your, your bearishness on the consumption side. So maybe USDA has not adjusted these consumption numbers down as, as much as they need to. Um, but uh, the, the market, I think, has got... You know, we've got 125 million bale production number in front of us. We've got a 22 million bale U.S. production number in front of us. Um, the, uh, and I think it's hard to get the U.S. production right now, as far as when I put numbers together, under 23 million. So I think we're going to have to deal with that come, come August. And that may be what pushes us over the edge down to below uh, 60 cents a pound. But I do think we've got a, a short-term possibility. Uh, the, the, the speculators are very short this market. Um, we've seen some pretty decent buying out of the textile mills here uh, in the short run. If we get the, the speculators nervous, you could see a little flash up to 66 to 68 cents on the upside. 
But I do think, I agree with you, I do think that we're going to eventually see our way back down below. We're going to test 60 cents, and then I think we'll move down to below 60 cents eventually. So, uh, you know, 56 to 68 cents trading range for at least the next six months. Let me ask a question on uh, the downside of the market, folks. You've been talking about uh, both of y'all, uh, and I agree. I mean, we've got certainly in the short term has potential for lower prices, but how much of this is based on this uh, imminent recession, global recession that's caused by the trade wars and so on? That simply hasn't occurred yet. I'm not sure we're in a scenario where it will. Central bankers have the ability uh, and have shown that they can keep a uh, keep an economy growing longer than it ordinarily would because of the cyclical uh, uh, patterns and so on. But the fact of the matter is how much of this pall or this kind of negativeness on uh, mill use and consumption is based on economic uh, forecasts that have simply not come true? And what happens if it doesn't come true? Maybe we don't have this sort of global recession Merle, many people are expecting. I mean, how does that impact the price level? How much of, of our bearishness is based on that, which simply hasn't occurred? I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I, I think we get a bit too bearish at times, even in the short term, when there's, it, it's based on a forecast that simply has not been shown to occur, or even in the, the numbers we're looking at says we're status quo, not really sliding at all. And to the point on the yarn markets, uh, those prices have fallen, but they certainly aren't, uh, uh, well, they're not profitable from a lot of mills, true. But in some areas, those prices are actually a little bit up because of those source locations, uh, and the dislocations because of sourcing. So uh, it's a difficult, difficult situation. I just was curious about how much of this was on the, uh, the forecast for a, a recession. Let's take a little break. We're going to come back to some questions we've had that have come in. We, uh, we do have with us uh, from BASF and E3, Jennifer Crumpler and uh, John Mixon. Let me go to Jennifer now and ask her uh, about what's going on with BASF and E3. Yeah, so I'm going to give a little positive. I'll tell Mr. Owe, I think there's some thrill we can bring back in the U.S. cotton business. And so um, as many of you guys know, in August of 2018, BASF acquired Stonebull and Fibermax Cottonseed to add to our cotton portfolio. And part of that is really to show BASF's commitment to the American farmer, but also, you know, we're committed to be the industry leader in sustainability and traceability. So with our E3 program here in the U.S., what that really does and what we've seen, and I think up here we can kind of hear from everyone, we get passionate about cotton and passionate about telling the story and why we have our story to tell. And so at BASF, we're really passionate about telling the story of traceability and sustainability, being able to work with the brands, um, with textile mills to help tell their story of the American farmer, our cotton farmers, where their cotton came from, how it came from, and to tell the process of the story. And at BASF, that's what we want to do and to work with our U.S. growers on telling that story. We, um, at BASF, you know, we've talk to many of the, we've heard the word sustainability, but one thing we've really done is reach out to textile mills, to different brands to say, okay, what does that mean for you when you hear sustainability? What does traceability mean? And so that's where we've taken that industry leadership position, creating our E3 program. So under the E3 program, um, when you hear the 
E3, we really have three E's that we really focus on a lot. Um, social equi- equitable, so be socially equitable. So, you know, addressing some of those issues with labor and some of those things for our growers are showing really that, hey, they're really conscious of what they're doing on the farm. Looking at the um, being economically viable as well as environmentally responsible. And so that's where we've looked at, okay, seven different pillars or seven different categories of sustainability with um, anywhere from water efficiency soil and water fertility management. So really being able to, to provide to, um, to consumers through the brands and meals measured quantitative, qualitative data that we can show, hey, our growers in the U.S. are being sustainable. They are truly wanting to help the U.S. market. Um, I'm really excited. I haven't heard anybody mention it up here today, but BASF's really excited because there's a brand-new textile mill open it up in Louisiana. It'll start spinning in um, September. So we're excited. We, um, Vidalia Mills, and I, you know, those guys have been great to partner with. So for us, with our Fibermax and Stonebowl, with our E3 program, the mills can be committed to 100% is going to be E3 cotton. So, you know, there is some positives that we can talk about, and we can talk about, you know, hey, the U.S., we've got some textile mills coming back. I grew up in a small little town in North Carolina, and right now we're sitting with three empty Burlington Mills plants. So I'm excited to see some of this stuff coming back to the U.S. and some of the opportunities for cotton consumption and us at BASF through our A3 program to kind of work and tell that story and help the American farmer and help other options and other markets and other opportunities to sell our cotton. We've talked about the trade war. We understand that. So BASF, that's where we've committed to work with, you know, different textile mills and help find the market for our growers who are growing our sustainable cotton, you know, an avenue to have, help sell that. All right. I guess we've heard so much about sustainability over the years, and I'm just curious, and I'll ask John this, uh, what, is, uh, what is E3's definition of sustainability? And also I'll follow that up by saying how many farmers – do you have that are signed up for this? So just going to the sustainability piece first, uh, from a grower's perspective, I think what, what we offer with E3 is an opportunity for them to take a, take a look at the, the um, evaluate their field by field, their, their um, environmental impact on a field by field basis, looking at those seven pillars that, that Jennifer is looking at to become more efficient uh, and, and evaluate each farm as to how to become more efficient. So I think that's a positive opportunity for, for growers, and I think that's something that's unique to E3. Uh, as far as, uh, as the enrollment and the consumption, today what we're, we're, we're looking at is we're probably in the uh, several hundred growers each year at this point have, are signing up. And what we find is that they tend to come back year after year because what they find is once they enroll in, in the program, they find a platform to go back to talk to their landlord, their community, their, their consumer. And, and with that, they have, it, it gives them a real nice platform to talk from, to, to share uh, the things that they do well. Uh, as far as uh, the outlook of consumption in the, in the future, as far as the outlook in the future, I, we're seeing a lot of positive uh, interest from brands. We're seeing a lot of positive interest from, from yarn mills. And with that, I, b- I believe that we'll, the consumption that we have today somewhere just south of half a million bales, I think what we'll see is we'll see that ramp up very, very quickly. And so we're very excited about the program, and I think it gives the, the uh, U.S. cotton grower an opportunity to uh, market their, their bales in a different way and a sustain, you know, market their bales as a sustainable bale. 
Well, I guess the, the last question I'd ask is for, for farmers out there that want to learn more about this, is there a website they can go to, or do they talk to your reps, or what, what should they do? Yeah, so there's an um, E3 Cotton website that you can go to, um, your local seed advisor. Definitely talk to them and let them know you're interested. Reach out to us. Um, I'll give you guys just one example. You guys heard of Wrangler, very popular blue jean brand. So Wrangler, we just partnered with Wrangler um, and helped them to launch the Wrangler Rooted Project. If you haven't seen it, heard about it, go look it up. So we did five E3 growers across five different states, and we worked with them to create a pair of jeans that has their signature. It goes back to them, and so the consumers can trace those jeans all the way back to the field where it was done. So that's just one example of some things we're doing with brands. We have a lot of other brands we've lined up with, so some exciting things coming in um, Q4 or Q1 of 2020 because that's where the market's going. Those, that's the consumers are driving it to a traceable, sustainable market. And at BASF, we've proven to be that leader. And so we want to make sure if there are any growers, anybody out there interested, you know, talk to us. Let us know. Look on our website. Contact your local Stoneville FiberMax Seed Advisor because we'd love to have you in the program just as another way to tell your story. All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, let's uh, let's go back and, and respond to some questions um, that's, that's come in. Uh, I guess the we could say the 800-pound gorilla in the room has been China for some months now. We maybe even should say the 8,000-pound gorilla, uh, and, and that I'm sure has had a lot to do with the drop in demand and, and has put us in the place we're in. Uh, but ju- just some just some thoughts about. And I'll go to you, O.A., on this. What, what, and this is dangerous to ask it, what's your time frame? What, do you think we're going to work out a trade deal here sooner rather than later? Thanks, Pat. I guess. Uh, uh, yes, I think we'll work, work, work out a trade deal. I, 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 I think the bargaining table will, will be quite successful. Uh, I've never been... I never thought it would happen early. I've always told my folks that this is not about the trade deal. It's not about agriculture at all. Uh, it has nothing to do with agriculture as to how it got started and what's it going to take to solve it. It's always been about national security and information technology. And the Chinese elected to counter by bringing in agriculture. Uh, and that's been the the... the, the 500-pound gorilla in the room was their counter. They thought they could beat the tariff by going after agriculture. I think the administration has been very successful in countering that, though uh, the China wanted to uh, see how long the administration could hold out with that. To date, it seems to have held out. The announcements that come out of Washington with respect to USDA and farmers seem to Uh, be totally in the area of rectifying farmers for their loss. It's not unusual at all in American history to use farmers to try to settle international trade deals. Uh, It's it's been fairly common. Uh, uh, Carter did it. uh, Reagan did it. Uh, Y'all can think of some other ones, I'm sure, that I forget out, but it's not new. Now then, we've got a couple of guys standing toe-to-toe trying to work for their respective countries' rights. Uh, The biggest thing the U.S. has, uh, as far as uh, historical perspective, is uh, the the WTO and China being a signatory, and uh, basically, bottom line, without exaggeration, 
China has broken all but every single WTO agreement relative to agriculture there ever has been. China pays their growers a dollar and thirty-four cents, dollar forty, dollar whatever for a pound of cotton. Uh, if you want to find an equivalent uh, price, it, it doesn't exist, but we can work at it. We can calculate one. The, the U.S. would pay maybe a fifty-two, fifty-five cents for that, whereas China's paying a dollar thirty-four. So you've got a lot of uh, increased production in China. Uh, that, that, that we see because of the, uh, the, the, the false price. Uh, and I think, though, that, uh, you know, as the governments continue to try to get tariff-free, and I think they both want to be tariff-free, they do give and take and give and take, and I think we do get to a conclusion. Uh, I think very recently I have, on, only very recently have I concluded that the conclusion seems to be in the shorter rather than longer term. And I'm seeing things that suggest to me three to four months out, uh, we can we can get a, some sort of a resolution. Uh, it, it may well go longer. Again, I have historically said it would go long, but it, it's finally maybe coming to somewhat of an end because of the rhetoric that we're getting both from Beijing and Washington presently. Anybody got any other thoughts about that? About the the China trade situation? No, I thought uh, we summarized it very well. Well, we, we and this is technical, uh, but we have a very large short position and a very negative feeling market right now. Would it be, uh, it would not be unusual, uh, and I'm asking this, to see some type of a rally, even though it might be short cover? So, so this is John Nixon. I would like to just ask a question to the, the panel here. Um, there are several brands and several uh, meals. Skip, you mentioned several several meals uh, in other other areas other than just in China coming online. Is there any short-term opportunity just in in the initial stocking of those meals that would offer a little bit of uh, some of the shiny side? Well, as, as I mentioned, and maybe I wasn't clear in, in the way I was saying it, there's a lot of dislocation involved with that, and. Uh, Away made the comment that it doesn't happen overnight. That's true. Yeah, you could get short-term, but it's going to be disjointed. And to Away's point earlier, you'll have where it might boost here is declining there. So on net, it, it, it's kind of status quo. And that's what I was talking about earlier is this Paul in the market is it's hard to get your arms around. Well, it's really increasing here, but net, where are we going? If we look at the consumer level, we're seeing that the consumers are not behaving uh, as poorly as the market would indicate. Uh, in the U.S., uh, retail sales for <clears throat> excuse me, textile uh, clothes and, and clothing apparel is flat for the year. Uh, we had a nice increase in the last month of report expectations that there'll be another increase in the next one. That is not a it's not a great sign that things are improving, but it's certainly an indication that things are not horrible. So, it, as I say, it makes it very difficult in this environment, particularly with this, this huge trade uh, war on us, to try to get a handle on are we going up or going down. It, it's sort of a status quo. So yeah, I'm sorry, no. that probably wasn't a very good answer, but uh, I think that's what we're stuck with right now. 
And, you know, we're seeing, you mentioned the consumers and brands. One thing we're seeing, especially on our side, that we're having brands come to us that maybe aren't your typical, what you would think of as cotton, maybe the denim industry, but we're having other brands come to us as a um, home goods. So whether it's towels, other home goods like that, wanting you're opening up some other markets that maybe weren't necessarily a highlight or focus before. And so for, with our piece of it and our traceability, consumers like that. They like that traceability. That's where the market, that's where it's going. Consumers like it. And so, you know, we've seen some other opportunities and areas open with some other places that maybe we haven't necessarily looked at before. And so we're hoping, you know, hey, this will help spur some of that consumer drive, consumer demand spending, also help open up some of those markets. You know, it's it's interesting that uh, consumers are interested in traceability and they want to, you know, in terms of cotton, you've got the E3 program, and yet nobody worries about where their polyester clothes come from, you know. Nobody worries about how, how sustainable, you know, that is. But yet, you know, polyester is what, a 300 million bale a year market? And nobody asks a question, you know, what impact, is this having on the environment? We're starting to get some traction, you know, in, in, in that perspective, but it doesn't seem to slow things down. I mean, you know, China produces two-thirds of the world's polyester. India's talking about increasing their polyester production. I just don't understand, you know, as much as we all care about the environment, as much as uh, it, it, everyone talks about, you know, being good environmental stewards, you know, to always point, a billion pieces of fabric, and probably 90% of those had polyester in it. And, um, you know, that doesn't doesn't seem to bother people, yet everybody's worried about uh, putting a pesticide on a cotton crop. <laughs> well, maybe we can. Uh, the next, this will be the next straw industry. So we'll go from, you know, everybody being in the polyester side like we do the plastic straws. Maybe we could try to find something like that for the cotton industry. Yeah, that, that takes a lot of time. I know uh, Owe made the comment about the fifty cents uh, prices in China and a dollar over a dollar for cotton. That's the reason why a lot of people want to ignore that. It gets down to economics, and that, that's problematic. Until we get the social outrage that can, and that's the question you're asking, where is it? Well, it's caught up in economics, I'm afraid, and until we do get that critical mass to say stop it, we're going to continue to, uh, to let economics rule. Uh, it, it. That's right, it does. It gets caught up in economics, and, and that becomes a real problem. A couple of things. Again, I had the opportunity to make a comments at this textile, uh, text world uh, symposium earlier in the week, and uh, a gentleman from a corporation named Vince, who they're primarily cashmere, cashmere and silk, but they're very high quality. Uh, and I was castigating some of their audience, manufacturers, textile manufacturers, but not using cotton enough. And, and uh, but Vince, that spokesman, uh, Mr. Alexander, said, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to use cotton. Cotton has a great future and uh, several things. So I smiled and got the microphone back and made the comment that y'all are abandoning cotton too quickly. And several people in the audience actually literally stood up. I, I wear cotton. I wear cotton. I like cotton. So I felt like... Uh, I felt I felt great. I felt like we had some cotton folks. And, uh, John, you and you and Jennifer, I think probably the U.S. has to be 
extremely appreciative that y'all brought the uh, genetics of Fibermax, those Australian genetics, you brought those to the United States, and I think uh, y'all give us the absolute finest piece of uh, upland cotton uh, characteristics that we can that we can have that the world maybe has. These uh, will be some care comparisons, maybe Gerald with with Australia per se, but uh, we're very very very, very pleased with that. Uh, that fiber and the future it has, so we should find great movement down the road in the demand for that. Plus, but you know, plus the uh, and Cod's just got a great story to tell. Plus, all the the genetics, you know, is is that that's being put into these plants anymore. It just uh, it makes it even more sustainable. You know, you don't need the pesticides, you don't need the insect, the uh, uh, the herbicide. I mean, it's it, cotton has got a great story to tell. We're we're going to need to sort of wrap up here. And usually, what we do is we will ask everybody their opinion on price. And, and let me mention what I think we've gone over here: uh, our trading range of anywhere from the uh, high fifties to high sixties. Is that fair with most people of what they're thinking? All right. Uh, well, uh, this program today, of course, is recorded. It will be on the Ag Market Network website if you'd like to come on later and see it. Also, the audio is recorded for you to see on that site also. Uh, we want to thank uh, Ice Futures U.S. for hosting us. We want to thank the New York Stock Exchange, uh, Dave Farrell, for joining us, Jennifer Crumpler and John Mixon, and also to our panel. We thank everyone for making this another uh, excellent meeting. Uh, and uh, that is it. And that concludes our meeting of the New York Cotton Market Roundtable. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Pat. Pat. Thanks so much, Pat. I, I can't pretend, though I try to hide. I like you.